We read the word of God together in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Let's read the whole chapter. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto, unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them 
And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. The text we consider for preparatory this afternoon is verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, when John the Baptist began his public ministry in the wilderness beyond the Jordan River, we're told in the chapter before the one we read that the great message of his ministry was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. John the Baptist spoke to great and small. He spoke to Pharisees and Sadducees. He spoke to publicans and soldiers, to all kinds of people from all strata of society, calling them to repent, calling them to flee from the wrath to come, and calling them to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. John baptized those who confessed their sins. He baptized them in the Jordan River as a sign of the complete washing away of the sins that they confessed through the blood of him who was to come. When Jesus began his public ministry, He came down to see John the Baptist. And John baptized him in the Jordan River as a sign that this would be the one who by the shedding of his blood would wash away our sins. And Jesus then went out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And that experience at the beginning of his ministry demonstrated to all the world that he had no sin. He resisted those temptations of Satan and showed that he was therefore qualified. He was the only one qualified to wash away the sins of us sinners. Then we're told that Jesus began to preach. After his baptism, after his temptation, he went into the cities of Galilee, and began to preach. And what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or as we find it in Mark 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The message of Jesus was the same as the message of John the Baptist. And it is the same message that has gone forth into the world ever since. It's the message that goes out into the world still today through those men whom he has appointed to preach the gospel. 
And so I call your attention to it this morning on this occasion of preparatory as we look for matter for careful consideration in examining ourselves, examining our hearts, examining our sins, examining our faith. I call your attention to Jesus' call to repentance with a view to partaking of the Lord's Supper next week. Jesus is called to repentance. Notice, first of all, the call to repent of our sins. Secondly, the call to believe and follow him. And finally, the reason for urgency. At the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Jesus, of course, said many more things than those few words, but Matthew is telling us that this was the sum and substance of his preaching at that time, and really throughout his public ministry. The essence of it was, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus did not merely suggest or recommend that people would consider repenting, but Jesus preached the call to repent. That is, he preached with all authority. He preached as a herald, as the chief herald of the kingdom of heaven, sent into the world with the message of the king, and this is God's message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus did not come preaching a message that was cute, that was full of little jokes, that was designed to put people at ease, that was designed to make people feel good about themselves, as we find in so much preaching today. But Jesus came with a message that made people squirm, a message that stepped on their toes, a message that exposed their sins, and a message that was very serious indeed. He called them to repent, to repent of their sins. Today, Jesus comes to you and to me with that same message. Jesus stands here before us today, and he says to us the very same thing he said back then, repent of your sins, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent in the Greek language means literally to change your mind or to change your attitude. So when Jesus calls us to repent, he is calling us to change our attitude about our sin. Do you know what your sins are? Do you know what your specific sins are? And what do you think about those sins? What is your attitude about them? How do you feel about them? That's the question before us today. Jesus calls us to change our attitude about our sins, to repent. We are not prone by nature to repent. We are prone by nature to cover our sins to use a biblical expression, to cover them, to hide them, and to try to do away with them without repenting. We do not only sin 
in countless ways, but we also refuse to repent of our sins. We do that because of a deeply ingrained pride, which is one of our deepest and greatest sins. In our pride, we don't want to confess our sins, we don't see our sins, and we don't feel the need to repent of our sins. We cover our sins because of a deeply ingrained stubbornness of our will. We're deeply self-absorbed. We're deeply self-serving and self-protecting. And we become defensive at the suggestion that we have sins that we must repent of. And so we are not prone to repent. Do we not all experience this? Do we not deny our sins? Do we not deny, for example, that the money in our bank accounts or the pleasures that we love to enjoy in our lives are perhaps idols in our hearts that we're serving, that we're loving, that we're looking to for help and happiness to get us through our daily lives? Do we not minimize the blasphemy that we sometimes hear on the television, on the radio, in the movies, and in the shows in which our God's name is taken in vain? Do we not excuse the disrespectful words that we speak or that others speak about our parents, our elders, the rulers in our land, or our employers at work? Because after all, everybody talks like that. Everybody is saying these things. Do we not sometimes speak vicious words that cut the soul of our neighbor deeply like the piercings of a sword or look at them with enraged and infuriated eyes in which we stab them in their hearts but then deny that we have committed the kind of anger that Jesus calls murder? Do we not sometimes permit unchaste fantasies and desires to flourish in our minds as we look at a woman to lust after her or a man who is not our husband, but then adamantly deny that we are guilty of the kind of lust that Jesus calls adultery? Do we not hide things that we consider little acts of stealing or little acts of cheating or white lies or little gossip or little backbiting but deny that we could be called liars or that we could be considered backbiters or that we would be considered a slanderer. We do it all the time. It's the pride of our hearts It's deeply ingrained in us to think that we are pretty good people. That we're not that bad. Especially when we look at others around us and we compare ourselves to them and we see how terrible and evil are the deeds of those people compared to ourselves. And therefore, we don't see any real need for repentance That's pride. Or we're just plain stubborn and obstinate 
And we refuse to even consider for a moment that something that we do habitually could possibly be a sin. That's our pride and our stubbornness. We are so evil by nature that we are even prone to try to deny that God exists and to try to deny that there is a God in heaven who has written the requirements of his law upon our hearts and who observes every idle thought and every idle word that we speak and every little deed and who will hold us accountable to every one of them in the great day of judgment. By nature, we are not prone to repent. We are prone to cover our sins. And the scriptures warn us about that. Proverbs 28, verse 13 He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. In Luke 13, verses 2 and 3, Jesus said about certain men who evidently experienced great suffering, he said to others who had observed or heard this news, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, Because they suffered greatly, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. In 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, the apostle says to us Christians, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He not only came to call the publicans, and the harlots, and the drunkards, and the thieves, and the extortioners to repentance, But he also came to call the proud, polished, church-going scribes and Pharisees to repentance, who thought they had no need of it. Jesus comes to us today. Jesus stands before you and me right now, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is repentance? What is Jesus calling us to? First of all, Jesus is calling us to recognize our sins. To realize what they are. And to acknowledge them. And to confess them. And to do that from the heart. Not mere lip service. But to confess from the heart. Our sins. I have sinned by this thought, this fantasy, this word, this deed. I have sinned against thee, O Lord. I'm guilty of that. I've done that. I can't blame anybody else. I can't make any excuses for it. I cannot justify it. It's a sin. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against thee, O Lord. I've broken thy commandments, and I'm sorry. 
Repentance is a true confessing in which we don't minimize our sin. We don't act as if it's not that big of a deal. But we recognize that because it's a sin, it's an abomination to the Lord. Because all sin is an abomination to him. True repentance is not merely saying the words, I have sinned. King Saul did that. 1 Samuel 26, verse 21, when David showed that he was able to kill Saul in that cave when he had him cornered, Saul said, I have sinned. You are more righteous than me. It's as if Saul is saying, you got me. And now I have to fess up. I was wrong. I was a fool and you caught me in it. That's not repentance. Repentance is confessing from the heart sincerely. I have sinned against thee, O Lord. It's to say, as David did in Psalm 51, 3 and 4, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Repentance is a recognition that when I sin, I sin against no one else than the glorious God of heaven who is worthy of my constant love, my constant obedience, my constant reverence. It's a recognition that when I sin, I am breaking the commandments of the sovereign Jehovah who spoke from the holy mountain in the midst of the thunders and the earthquake and the fire and the burning and the smoke when he spoke his commandments to the children of Israel. I'm sinning against the Lord of hosts, the great and glorious God, the God who controls all of creation by his providence and governs all things. And recognizing my sin as a sin against him, I consider also the curse due to me for that sin. I consider the fact that that sin makes me worthy of eternal condemnation. That sin is an abomination to God. Nothing less. My sin. Not the sin of everyone else. My sin. That, first of all, is repentance. In the second place, repentance means that we are sorry for our sins. We're actually sorry about it. Repentance means that we have a true and sincere sorrow of heart when we realize that we have sinned against the God who created us, who loved us, and who redeemed us through the gift of his Son. Repentance is not just sobbing in misery over the consequences of our sin. Sometimes we sin and we get caught. And we have to face the facts, face the consequences. And sometimes those are very miserable consequences. Sometimes we even ruin our lives by our sins. We become humiliated. We become embarrassed. Perhaps so embarrassed that we actually cry about it. That's not repentance. That's still selfish. It's still self-absorbed and self-focused as we cry in self-pity about the ruin we have brought upon ourselves. Repentance 
means that I'm sorry about my sin because I sinned against God. You know, Judas Iscariot, after he sold Christ for silver, brought the silver back to the temple, cast it down on the floor, and said to the rulers of the Jews, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And Matthew 27 says that he repented, but he didn't truly repent. That was a false repentance. How do we know? Because he went out in his despair and hung himself by a rope and committed suicide. That's not repentance. Repentance is that I'm sorry for my sin because I've sinned against my God. Repentance is seen in Peter after he denied the Lord thrice and he heard the crowing of the rooster. He went out into the night and wept bitterly. Yes, repentance often involves literal tears. Literal tears on our faces. Not every time, but there ought to be tears sometimes as we consider our sins, what they are, how we have sinned against God. But whether there are tears or no physical tears, repentance always involves what Psalm 51 verse 17 calls a broken and a contrite heart. And what Lord's Day 33 says, that we have provoked God by our sins. As the children of God, we might be like Job. It might be said about you or me that we are perfect and upright, that we live our lives consistently and faithfully as Christians, fearing the Lord and serving the Lord in all aspects of our life. But if God comes and touches us with suffering, as he did with Job, and we complain, even a little bit, or if we question the fairness of our affliction, then we reveal our sinfulness. And God comes to us in the whirlwind, as he did to Job, the tornado a fierce, cycling wind, and God speaks to us, Who are you? And where were you? When I created the heavens and the earth and laid the foundations of the universe, were you there? And then, like Job, our answer must be, I hear you, Lord. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I'm a sinner. The Lord Jesus Christ stands before us today and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The call to repentance is in the second place a call to faith. The word repent means to change your mind or your attitude. 
when Jesus calls us to repent, he also calls us to change our attitude about God and about Christ and about the truth of the gospel and to believe it. To believe the gospel. As we heard in our introduction, Mark 1 mentions this same preaching of Jesus early in his ministry and summarizes his message in these words, Repent ye and believe the gospel. In the scriptures we find again and again that the call to repentance comes with the call to believe. Repent and believe. Do you know what you believe? What do you think about God, the God of the scriptures? What do you think about Jesus? And what do you think about the truth of the gospel in your heart? At this very same time, Jesus was preaching the gospel. He wasn't only preaching the call of the gospel. He was preaching the content of the gospel as well. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And as he went about through the towns of Galilee, he was preaching to the people that God, in his love and mercy, had sent his Son into the world to save sinners and to gather sinners into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was preaching that God, in his infinite grace and mercy, had sent his Son to give his life a ransom for many to lay down his life, to give his blessed body to be broken and his, shed, his blood to be shed as an atonement for our sins. So that we who try to cover over our sins and our folly would have our sins covered over by the blood of the Lamb. He would truly cover our sins from the, the sight of the Lord and cast them away forever. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that through the sacrifice and death of the Son of God, there would be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom in which there will be infinite riches and glories and blessings and happiness and life with God. And he preaches the gospel to us now, that because of his perfect sacrifice on the cross, God forgives all your sins. And all mine. He blots them out of his remembrance for all eternity. He cancels every single sin with the blood of the cross of his Son, so that he sees them no more, because he imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, by faith alone, so that in Christ alone is all our salvation. He brings to us the gospel that he will give us everlasting life and we will not perish as we deserve who put our trust in Jesus Christ. He brings that gospel to us and he calls us with that gospel to repent and believe. He says to us with that gospel, what do you think of it? 
You can't be neutral in regard to the God of this gospel. You can't be neutral in regard to this Jesus. You can't be neutral about the truth that is brought to you. Do you believe it or don't you? He says that to you and to me. Because you see, by nature, we don't believe it. And we can't believe it. Because we're prone to unbelief. We're prone to skepticism. We're prone to cynicism. We're prone to pride and idolatry and superstition. We will believe anything under the sun except for the truth of the gospel, if left to ourselves. We'll believe anything. It's amazing the things we will believe. But we are prone not to believe in the Christ of God. In our imaginations, we come up with all kinds of things that we think might be real in the unseen world. And we're willing to believe those things, aren't we? I mean, we human beings, by nature. We're willing to believe anything. But this call of the gospel comes to us and it comes to all the world. Here is the gospel. Here is God and Jesus and the truth of salvation. What will you do with it? What do you think of it? Repent and believe. The Lord Jesus Christ says to us, Believe in me as your Lord and Savior, because there is no other. He says, Come to me and look upon me with the eyes of faith as you see me through faith hanging on the cross with my arms stretched out, nailed to the cross beam, my feet nailed to the post, my blood streaming down my body and from my head as you see me laying down my life. Come to me, look upon me and believe. And trust in me with all your heart. Because I'm dying for you. For your forgiveness and your salvation and your righteousness. Come to me and believe in me. Trust in me. As you look upon that empty sepulcher. And you see that my body is not there. Because I've been risen from the dead. I'm alive. I've ascended up into heaven. I've sat down at the right hand of God. And I'm the king of kings and I reign over all the universe. Trust in me. Look upon me by faith. I am your Lord and your king. Believe in me and trust in me. As long as you have breath. Until you come to the end of your earthly sojourn. Repent and believe. You know the book, The Pilgrim's Progress? Written by John Bunyan. In that book, there's a man named Christian. And he has upon his back a large burden, a heavy burden that he can hardly carry. And it's a picture of the burden of his sins. And an evangelist tells him, you have to go there, the way of the wicked gate. That's the way to the celestial city. And as he sets down the way, On his way to the celestial city, at one point in his journey, he comes to a cross. And as he comes under the shadow of that cross, suddenly 
that gigantic burden on his back rolls off. And it tumbles down into a sepulcher. And there it remains. And he leaps for joy as he comes to realize his sins are forgiven. As he gazed upon the cross. Repent, Jesus says, and believe. Jesus began to preach this call at the beginning of his ministry. And he continued it throughout his ministry. And he continued it after his ministry through his apostles and prophets and missionaries and preachers up to this present time. Because after his resurrection, Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 24, verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached in all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And in the Reformed churches, therefore, we understand that we have a calling to bring this gospel through missions into all nations. Our Reformed fathers taught us that in the Canons of Dort, Head 2, Article 5. The promise of the gospel, they said, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. And in Canons of Dort, Heads 3 and 4, Article 8, God hath most earnestly and truly shown in his word what is pleasing to him, namely, that those who are called should come to him. The hyper-Calvinist says, we preach the gospel only to the elect. But we don't know who the elect are. Well, then he might say, you try to preach the gospel only to those who seem to be regenerated. But we have no right to do that. Our own Reformed creeds on the basis of Scripture tells us that even as Calvinists, especially as Calvinists, our calling is to preach repentance and remission of sins in all nations. God will use it to gather his elect. Jesus said in Matthew 22 that few are, many are called, but few are chosen. Not everybody who hears the call to repent and believe gives heed to that call. Many who hear the call stubbornly harden their hearts against it and stubbornly maintain they have no need of repentance and they have no need of Jesus Christ. Do you repent and believe? If you do, then that's a cause for thanksgiving. Because repentance and faith are the gifts of God. The gifts of God. We cannot repent of our own strength. We cannot repent and believe by our own free will. But as the Canons of Dort also teach us, Heads 3 and 4, Article 10, As he has chosen his own from eternity in Christ, so he confers upon them faith and repentance. 
And he confers them upon us in such a way that as the canons go on to say, we actually repent and believe. When God brings us to repentance and faith by the power of his grace, so that we are justified freely by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know ourselves to be Christians, and we have peace with God, and we have the joy of salvation, and we are filled with gratitude to God, then the call to repentance comes yet again. And again. And again. Jesus knows that we are Christians, and yet he still comes before us today and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My people, whom I love and for whom I died on the cross, repent. That call to repentance comes to us as those who have been justified by faith, as a calling to renew our minds. Remember, repent means to change your attitude, to change your mind. And the calling that we have as Christians, then, is to renew our minds, to change our minds about Jesus, so that whereas by nature we would have nothing to do with him, that now we follow him. Jesus came to the disciples later in the chapter that we read, and he simply said, follow me. And they left their fishing nets, they left their father, they left their livelihood, they left everything, and they followed him. The call to repentance is a a call to follow Jesus, to purpose in our hearts, as the Lord's Supper form puts it, to show true thankfulness to God in our whole life and are resolving to walk in true love for God and our neighbor. Remember John the Baptist the beginning of his ministry. His message was the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But John the Baptist was not merely calling the people to confess their sins, come into the water, get baptized, and that's all. He was calling them to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Fruits in their lives. The publicans came to him and said, what shall we do? And he said, only collect the amount of taxes that you're supposed to collect, no more. The soldier said, what shall we do? And he said, be content with your wages. What shall we do? Put off the old man and put on the new and bring forth fruits which demonstrate you are truly Repentant of your sins. Martin Luther, the great reformer who nailed 95 theses on the church door of Wittenberg in 1517, wrote those 95 theses in a context in which the Roman Catholic Church had appointed a man named Johannes Tetzel to go around the towns of Germany selling indulgences. 
because the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches that in this text, Matthew 4, verse 17, which in their Latin Bible says, do penance, instead of repent, it says, do penance. They interpret that to mean that you have to confess your sins to the priest, and then you have to do something. You have to do penance. You have to make satisfaction for your own sins. And one of the ways that the church said you could do that was to give money to the church and buy indulgences and help to buy, uh, to build the cathedral in Rome. And Martin Luther was enraged as he came to understand the truths of the gospel and the scriptures, the reading of the Bible. He wrote those 95 theses, and the first thesis makes reference to our text. And Brother Luther says, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant the whole life of believers should be repentance. That's the first of the 95 theses. The whole life of believers should be repentance. You see, people thought that if they sinned, maybe they committed adultery or stealing or lying, they could just buy an indulgence, get forgiveness, and they would be good, and they had nothing left to do. And Luther was enraged. Luther, the one who restored to the church the great gospel of justification by faith alone, without works. He knew that that faith must produce the fruits of thankful works of love. The whole life of the believer is to be one of repentance. In that proverb, 28 verse 13, it says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. When we confess our sins, we must also forsake them. That's the life of sanctification. That's the life of repentance. An ongoing struggle against our indwelling sins to forsake them. When a person says, I'm sorry, but the very next moment or the very next day he commits the sin again, then John the Baptist says, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And our Lord Jesus says that too. It is true. As Christians, we sincerely repent of our sins and sometimes backslide into them. In fact, not just sometimes, but oftentimes. How many times have we backslidden into the very sins we repented of? We must not be troubled into doubting our salvation if we have a sincere and earnest hatred of that sin and a sincere and earnest striving to forsake it. But your trust in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't forsake it by our own strength. But he has the power to break those chains of 
besetting, habitual, addictive sins in our lives. He does. And he calls us to strive by faith, by the power of Christ, to forsake all of our sins. Is not this the same Jesus who says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, cast it away from you. If your right hand offends you, then cut it off. It's better to go into life with one hand than to go into hell with two. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, no matter what the cost. If it costs you your father and your mother and your sister and your brother, follow me. Otherwise, you're not worthy of me. None of that is a condition of salvation. That call to repent is the calling to follow Jesus. That's all. To put off the old and to put on the new. To change our attitudes about our sins so that we're thankful and we're willing to count every cost to follow Jesus to the celestial city. Because that is more precious to us than anything. Finally, the Lord shows us why this call is so urgent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why it is such an urgent call. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is not talking about a kingdom here on earth. That's not what he meant when he preached that at the beginning of his ministry. If, if he did mean that, then he must have failed. And some modern theologians say just that. Jesus, he thought he was going to establish a kingdom on earth, but he failed. He was crucified. That's a lie. He never intended to establish a kingdom on this earth. Not at that time and not in the future. The millennialists of both kinds believe that Jesus is yet going to establish a kingdom on earth in the future, maybe for a thousand years or maybe for more, either before he comes or after he comes. But that's not true. It's a kingdom of heaven that Jesus is preaching. Jesus would say to Pilate when he asked him, Are you a king? My kingdom is not of this world. When the Jews asked him about his kingdom, he said, it doesn't come with observation, and you can't say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom is within you. And the Apostle Paul confirmed in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come near. When the Son of God came into the world, that's when the kingdom of heaven became near. It came near to mankind. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, it remained near. And when he was on the cross, and when he arose, and when he ascended into heaven, the kingdom was still near. The kingdom didn't come near and then fly away. The kingdom came near through Jesus, and it remained near. And it's still near. Because the kingdom of God is here. 
The kingdom of God is in the church. The kingdom of heaven is where the word and the spirit of the king are at work, where that call to repentance is heard, where the blessings of the gospel are dispensed in word and sacrament. The kingdom is near, and the full realization of the kingdom is coming nearer every day as we draw closer and closer and closer to the coming of the king. For that reason, Jesus says, repent and believe. Sometimes we perhaps wonder, why has not the kingdom of heaven fully come yet? Why does it seem to take so long? Why has it been thousands of years? How much longer will it be? And the world scoffs at us and says, you see, the promise of his coming, it's all false. He's not coming. But the Apostle Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter doesn't mean by that that the will of the Lord is for every single human being to come to repentance before the end of time. If that's what he means, then the end will never come. Because every single day, people perish without repentance. But what Peter means is that God is not willing for any of his beloved and elect people to perish. His will is that every single one of them will come to repentance. And therefore, the preaching of the gospel has to go out, the preaching of the kingdom, until every last one has been brought to repentance. Then the kingdom of heaven will fully come. But this is the time for repentance. The time is swiftly coming when there will be no more opportunity for repentance. When the kingdom of heaven has fully come, when you die and when I die, the time for repentance has passed. It's too late for a man to repent after he has died. And when the Lord finally returns, the time will have passed for repentance. And the king will come in all of his glory and sit on the throne of judgment. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. The call to repentance is urgent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But finally, the urgency of the call is that the nearness of the kingdom of heaven ought to fill us with an urgency to live in thankful joy to our King kingdom of heaven has come near to you. 
and to me. So near that we've been brought into it for all eternity. Will we continue in sin? No. Let us repent and let us walk in obedience and thankfulness. Amen. Our gracious and merciful God, we give thanks to Thee that in Thy kindness Thou dost deliver to us this call to repentance. And may each of us take it to heart. And may each of us, discovering our sins and the seriousness of them and what they deserve and the curse due to us, grant, Father, that we might sincerely repent Put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we come next Sunday, if it be thy will, to eat the broken bread and drink the poured out wine in remembrance of him.